like the founding of the Chabad movement. Like where did Chabad come from? So you could trace it back to this day, 1772. But really, the Chabad movement wasn't something only new. It was an outgrowth of the Hasidic movement that had started two generations earlier. The Baal Shem Tov was the first Hasidic Rebbe, the first leader of the Hasidic movement, to be revealed. Meaning to say, Hasidism and Jewish mysticism was, generally speaking, a secret society. It was a secret society of mystics who kind of kept to themselves, but infiltrated the Jewish world almost in secrecy by teaching the deeper aspects of the Torah, the inner dimensions of the Torah. And they basically kept to themselves, but had it spread their roots kind of underground within the Jewish community, enlivening the Jewish community through teaching them about Jewish mysticism. The Baal Shem Tov comes out and he blows the doors off the whole thing. He says, it's time to publicize it. Time to come out of the shadows, so to say, and bring Jewish mysticism to the, its prominent place where it belongs. Why was it in the shadows? Well, you really have to go back to the 1500s even to go back that way. The Kabbalists in northern Israel had escaped the Spanish Inquisition in the late 1400s. And Kabbalah amongst the Sephardic Jewish people like, was amazing. Like It was widespread. Everybody was very involved in like the Zohar, Jewish mysticism. And then, over the course of the next century, it kind of went underground. There's a few reasons as to why. First of all, there was a horrible earthquake in northern Israel, and a lot of the Jews actually left Israel. And there was uh, massacres by the Arabs as well that caused the Jewish, the, the Kabbalistic schools to break apart. But with that happened that the Kabbalah permeated all the Jewish world because the Jewish people had left Spain and northern Israel and permeated the Jewish world through its teachings. It's caught on like wildfire. But then there was the fake Messiah, the false Messiah, Shabbatai Svi, who lived in, um, well, he traveled a lot, but that false Messiah put a very big damper on what was a very fruitful, organic Jewish mysticism until that point. Because he himself took the mystical tenets of Kabbalah and bastardized them. He manipulated them to be able to manipulate people. It's almost like a cult. And so anybody who was a proponent of teaching Jewish mysticism after him was looked upon with suspicion that you're a member of that cult. And so the Jewish world kind of put a damper on anybody who went into Kabbalah, who went into mysticism, who was involved in the spiritual because no one wanted to be suspected of being a false follower of a false messiah. Even though, believe it or not, that cultish behavior really also infiltrated a lot of the Jewish world. He was proven to be false. He was, was a horrible situation. Until the Baal Shem Tov comes around in the 1600s and he wakes up the world. What happens when someone's in a coma? You call their name first or someone passes out, you call their name. What's the name of a Jew? Yisrael. Baal Shem Tov's name was Yisrael, Israel. And he woke the Jewish world up from a coma. Not only was it in a coma spiritually, but just also, just for frame of reference, we always talk about, in like history class in America, talk about the Dark Ages, right? The Dark Ages for the Jewish people was the Light Ages. The best time to be a Jew in the Dark Ages. I don't know, materially, definitely spiritually. 
Think of the greatest sages we have, Rashi. He lived in the Dark Ages. All these great, like, um, after, later sages were from the Dark Ages. It was a great time to be a Jew. The wisdom, the amount of breadth of Jewish law was amazing. And then the, the false messiah of Shabbat Tzvi kind of put a closure on that, that era a little bit. And the Jewish people had developed almost like a caste system. You almost had the haves and have-nots. Not only financially, but spiritually. The rabbis would go to their shul. The blue-collar guys would go to their shul. It sounds crazy as Jews. And uh, the white-collar people with money would go to their shul. And uh, you had all these different levels of, like Jews, it was like, if you go to a shul, the rabbis would sit at the front and those lay people would be at the back. And the people who couldn't even pray, there was illiteracy even in the Jewish world who could only just memorize words of psalms that they heard from their father or their mother. And they would sit in the back of the shul or they would all have their own prayer service with just psalms. And it, the world was, of Jewish world was very rigid. There was, believe it or not, illiteracy, maybe for the, one of the first times in our history. There was um, apathy to spiritual topics. Most people were religious, but there was apathy to the spirituality, the soul of the Torah, because of the false messiah. So the Jewish world was not in a good place in the 1600s. Comes the Baal Shem Tov and he lights the world on fire. He says, ah, there's Jew, and there's God, and that's it. He used to just walk up to people and ask them how they were, so they would say two words, Baruch Hashem. Just to acknowledge a creator. And then he would teach other people, to love your fellow Jew. He would go around the, like, the Jewish world, just encouraging people to say Baruch Hashem, and to love your fellow Jew. And it was all rooted, though, in the deepest of mysticism the deepest teachings of Kabbalah, and then eventually Hasidic philosophy. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov would walk up to a great rabbi and ask him, how are you? And the rabbi would like, you know, roll his eyes or at, at best, or just not acknowledge him. He says, how are you? So he says, this, that you're not answering me, you're not acknowledging your creator. The answer is Baruch Hashem. To get a great Torah sage and to get, get an illiterate water carrier, both to say the same thing, phrase of praising their creator was like a goal of the Baal Shem Tov. Like a life goal. And this made equality, equanimity between the scholars, the intelligentsia, and the layperson, between the rich and the poor. He encouraged the rich to give extra tzedakah to help their brethren, to help the lay people realize that they're as great as anybody else. That the Jewish world is open source. We call it open source today. Today, that's the best way to put it. Open source Judaism. He opened the doors and he woke the Jewish world up from its like spiritual coma. He woke the Jewish world up from its slumber, its sleep. It's like descent into, into, into like levels of social strata, of spiritual strata, of intellectual strata. And he says everyone has access. Men, women, children, rabbis, water carriers, lawyers, doctors, businessmen, everybody has access. But that wasn't enough. Two generations later, comes the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, and he says it's not enough just to acknowledge a creator. It's not enough just to have the love of a fellow Jew, but every Jew on their own should be able to connect. Don't need the Baal Shem Tov. You don't need me, he would say even. You have, a, you have your own unique connection to God, and you can pursue it intellectually and emotionally. 
and it's up to you. The individual became primary, thereby empowering every person according to their capacity to be able to connect to the infinite. And it begins with the mind. You have a mind, you're alive. You're thinking, your brain function, your brain waves, you're alive. Use those brain waves for a godly purpose. And he did the crazy revolutionary act of saying an infinite creator can be understood in a finite brain. And this is what Chabad is. And he says everybody has access and everyone can do it on their own. Not only have access, but you can do it on your own. And here's the guidebook called the Tanya. Here's the guidebook for every Jew, a spiritual guidebook for every Jew to access the essence of who they are and thereby the essence of, of their creator. And he says, study it. And this is applied wisdom, applied knowledge, applied understanding, according to each person, to get in touch with their essence. And this is something very revolutionary, even compared to the Baal Shem Tov, because the Baal Shem Tov, there was almost a passivity that a person could have. Almost a level of, like, it doesn't demand of me so much other than pure acknowledgement and joy and love, which is beautiful. I mean, it's a, not to underestimate the Baal Shem Tov. But when uh, he said you could find it in a book, you could find God in a book and live by that book on your own, this is very revolutionary also. Because now you're taking it out of the hands of the mystics. Now you're taking it out of the hands of the great Rebbe's. Say, you can do it. Here's the book. Now go do it. Very empowering. Very, almost dangerous for everyone to say they can pursue it on their own. Because where's the checks and balances? Where's the mentorship? Where's the rabbis? That still exists. And you do it. You do the, You live according to the Tanya with your rabbi, with your mentor, with your, with your teachers. But you have your own relationship that is so special, that is so precious, that is so amazing. And basically for this, he was put in jail. Half the Jewish world was pro-Hasidism. Half the world was anti-antagonistic. And the antagonists went to such, to such extents that they literally ratted on the Hasidim. They literally created false charges, trumped up charges against the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, and said, he's a, he's a revolutionary. He's doing, you know, treason against the Russian government. One of the Trump Club charges was that he was sending money to, to Israel. He was giving charity. He made a charitable fund that's the oldest charity contiguously existing in Israel to this day called Kolel Chabad. It's been over 300 years. It's the oldest charity in Israel that's been extant from day one till now. And the Kolel Chabad Fund basically supported the first groups of Hasidim who went to Israel. I mean, today, Zionism has a lot of different connotations, but they were the first uh, Hasidim where they were Zionists. They believed in really, there was real Zionism, Mashiach Zionism, not uh, contemporary, modern, governmental Zionism. They believed, you know, Mashiach is around the corner, let's get going here, <laughs> like, you know. And also, they, they didn't want the horrors of Russia, they left behind. So he sent money to support this initial colony in Israel. But who was Israel under the dominion of? The Turkish government. Turk versus Russian was a big war at that time. So sending money to a, a, a um, what do you call it? A, uh, 
an offshoot and um, a fat, what is it called? A, uh, I'm losing my thought. The um, satellite. A satellite country. Thank you. But there's a word for it. There's a great word. I'm trying to think. But a satellite country of the Turkish government that's under their dominion. So they made a trumped up charge that he's sending money there. Okay? So that was one thing. And they showed letters of tremendous amounts of charity being gathered in Russia, in Poland, all over Lithuania, Ukraine, all over, being donated to Israel, sent to Israel. What a beautiful thing. And do you think that other Jews use that as a libel against the rabbi? I mean, like, see how low they sank, unfortunately. A vassal, a vassal country, a vassal. V-A-S-S-A-L. So the point is that they did everything they could to get rid of the altar Rebbe. They expected him to be killed by the government, by the Tsar. And they thought, if he's killed, the Rebbe's killed, then we'll be good. They also took mystical concepts. They took pages of the Tanya back then. Don't forget, not everything was like printed and online and verifiable sources. So they would take copies. It was called a kuntris. Kuntris is, literally means, it's like a pamphlet, but more than a pamphlet. It's a small, it's a, mo- it's a small, um, like a few pages of a book, maybe like two to 20 pages of a thin book, pamphlet of a book. And the Tanya was not yet written all in one book. So there were these pamphlets that circulated around the Jewish world. They would take them, edit them, mistranslate them, and then publicize it to the world. And there's only one way to verify is that if you have a pamphlet and I have a pamphlet and he has a pamphlet and we can triangulate and see who's right based on the meaning. But So they would submit these bastardized, mistranslated pamphlets, mis, misprinted, intentionally misprinted pamphlets, fake news, and give it to the Tsar. And the Tsar looked at the, and they, the Tsar's ministers looked at these things and they, it was the actual questions they asked him in prison have been released about, right, I think two years ago. They re- finally, they got the Russian government released the questioning of the Otrebe and his answers. It's beautiful. It's been trans- translating into English. You can find it online. They started to translate it. A rabbi from Israel, I believe, is translating his answers. Beautiful answers. It's unbelievable. You want to know like 101 Judaism? <laughs> Ask, have, have, have the leader of the world Judaism explain it to a Russian minister. Hmm. Like, why do you believe that there's 10 powers of the soul? And like, what does it mean to you to be a god? And how, why is prayer so important in Judaism? And he answers like basic questions. Like, it's very interesting. I've read some of it. It's fascinating. But the point is, he was eventually released from prison. Miraculously. He was on, he was, he was on death row, literally. And miraculously, he was released from prison on the day of the 19th of Kislev. So it became a day of festivities for us in perpetuity since 1772. So one of the amazing things is, is that before he was put in Peter Paul Fortress in Petersburg, which is like Russian Alcatraz. If you see the prison, it still exists, I believe. I don't think it's used as a prison, but it's like a moat. There's a, like water around it where, you know, you got to take a boat back and forth. And while he was in prison, he had a vision of his Rebbe and, his, and the Baal Shem Tov. They had both passed. And he had a vision of them. And he asked them, he says, am I being punished for taking the deepest secrets possible and revealing them too far and wide? It's a good question. So maybe I should turn, take it down a notch. This is something from heaven. Tone it down a little bit. And they said the opposite is true. Ramp it up. Take it to the next level, and the next level, and next. go far and wide. Only when you do that are you fulfilling your purpose while your soul came into a body, and while you're filling what we started, you're finishing. 
And it, there is now known in the Jewish world, in Yiddish, Far Petersburg, Nach Petersburg. Before he was in Petersburg and after Petersburg. The teachings, if you look at the Chabad philosophy before the jail sentence and after he was released, it's like almost like night and day. One is like this, one is like this. Like, boom, like explained clearly, accessible to everybody, not watered down, but going in deeper so it's wider and it's understood deeper. It's unbelievable. So we celebrate this not only like there was one rabbi who was released from jail 200 years ago. Great. We celebrate it because this is like this is our life. This is the length of our days. This is like what makes Judaism, Judaism to us as people, as Jewish people today. You know, there's, there's a story that the altar Rebbe, his Rebbe was the Mazucha Magid, one time was approached by one of his students and he found outside in the courtyard by his synagogue a page of Kabbalah, a page of Zohar. And in the margins was written Hasidic commentary. And it was literally blowing around in the courtyard. I don't know how it got there. He picks it up and he says, this paper proves that we're gone too far. These are the deepest secrets. Only a circle of like 30 mystics 50 years ago could know this stuff. And now it's blowing around on the ground with our commentaries on it. What's going on here? We've gone too far. So he goes to his rabbi and he complains. And he complained more about the Altar Rebbe also, like because the Altar Rebbe really wanted to take the deepest and reveal it the most. Chabad, to this day, of all the Hasidic groups, is the most open source and deepest in its teachings. And so his Rebbe says a metaphor like this. There was one time a prince, the only son of a king, and he was deathly ill. The son was comatose, paralyzed. They fretted for his life. So the king sent out word far and wide, whoever heals my son, half the kingdom's yours. And he sends out messengers, and he gets back astrologers, scientists, doctors, theologians, religious people, whoever, everybody and everybody tries. One man stands up and says, I have a sort, I have a, a, a remedy for your son. I have a remedy for your son. But king, you're not going to like what it is. So what do you mean I'm not going to like what it is? My son. He says, you know your crown and the crown jewel that there's only one of in the world? This crown jewel that's in your crown, you have to grind it to a fine powder. Grind up the most valuable stone in the world. Add it to water and slowly drop by drop administer it to your son and in hopes that maybe he'll wake up. Maybe he'll be revived. So the king says, well, of course I'm going to do it. What's the point of having a crown if I don't have a son to put it on his head? crown's been in my family for generations, but the generation has to be the one to put it on his head. So he says, go for it. I'll take the risk. The man does it. And slowly, slowly, over two weeks, the boy opens his eyes. The young man starts walking, comes back to himself, invigorates himself completely, and back to health. What is this parable? What is this story? He says, in the later generations nowadays, we're like the comatose son. We're, the, we're knocked out. We're not on a very high level. Our mind, our, our hearts, they've been shut down. But we need God's crown jewel, Chabad philosophy, Chabad chassidus, to enliven us, to bring us back to life. And God says, it's the crown jewel. I never had to bring it out before. I never had to use it as a remedy for any of the prior generations because they were healthy. Ah, now this last generation, I need to take my crown jewel 
the teachings of Hasidic philosophy and make it palpable for everybody. And slowly, slowly, take a drop, a drop, and eventually the soul wakes up. Eventually the soul gets reinvigorated and comes back alive. So he says, now it's a mitzvah to publicize these teachings. It's a mitzvah for every single Jewish man, woman, and child to have full access to the deepest teachings of Kabbalah, Zohar, Hasidic philosophy, and make it accessible to everybody. So we celebrate today, that today, this week, we celebrated uh, the 19th and 20th of Kislev, and we celebrate it every year as a Rosh Hashanah for Hasidus. It's like Rosh Hashanah for the mystical teachings. You know, Rosh Hashanah is the new year for the world, the universe, the body, so to say, right? The sun, the moon, comes around. Celebrate the birthday of the world. Hayom, Haras, Olam. As we say in Rosh Hashanah, today is the birthday of the world. But Yitzhak Kislev is the birthday of our soul. It's the head of the year for the soul. It's the spiritual head of the year. I heard a great thing that, you know, that there's certain rabbinic, there's two rabbinic holidays. But there's a tradition that there's really three. And we've never known what the third rabbinic holiday is. The first rabbinic holidays are Purim and Hanukkah. Those are not biblical holidays. <clears throat> right? Passover, Sukkot, Shavuos, biblical. Rosh Hashanah, biblical. Yom Kippur, biblical. Purim and, and Hanukkah are not biblical holidays. They're rabbinical edicts. But they're predicated on, I'm not going to go into why Purim and Hanukkah were allowed to make them as holidays. They're minor, quote-unquote, holidays. They're not minor, they're major. But they're rabbinic. I'm not going to go into what they're based on, but they're based on the Torah. You can't make a holiday up out of nowhere and just say, now we have a new holiday. You know, you can commemorate things like Holocaust Remembrance Day. and You do that. But you can't make a holiday. Purim and Hanukkah are official holidays on the docket now. You're allowed to drive on them. You're allowed to, you could go to work on them if you have to. Better not, but you can. It's a rabbinic enactment. The third holiday, the tradition we have is Yotas Kislev. The third rabbinical holiday, we got, we says we're going to get the gift right before Mashiach comes, and this is Yotas Kislev. Yotas Kislev is the third rabbinic holiday. What does Purim celebrate? The victory of the body. Haman wanted to kill us. And we won. Mordechai, Esther, amazing heroine, amazing queen, amazing person. She saved us. Our bodies were saved. We were allowed to eventually return to the Holy Temple and rebuild it. Hanukkah, what are we celebrating? In Hanukkah, the Greeks, the Hellenists, didn't want to kill us. What do they want to do? Assimilate us. The Greeks did not want to kill the Jews, per se. All they wanted to do was assimilate us into Greek philosophy, Hellenistic culture, where the body was paramount over the mind. And so we won, obviously, a physical battle, because eventually they did destroy our holy temple, and so on and so forth, violate our holy temple, so on and so forth. But what are we celebrating? We're, we're celebrating the victory of Judaism, of like Jewish life, of Torah, sort of saying. So the first is the victory of the Jew, the existence of who we are, Purim. Like, Jews are allowed to be Jews. In fact, where do we get the name Jew from? Mordechai, Purim. Mordechai HaYehudi. He's a Jew. Mordechai the Jew. <laughs> That's his name. So the first is we celebrate the victory of the Jews. The second, in Hanukkah, we celebrate the victory of Torah. The Hellenists said, you can keep Torah as long as it makes sense. Any mitzvahs that don't make sense, you can't keep. Kosher meat, kosher cheese, you're not allowed to put them together 
according to Jewish law, that's not kosher. Meat and milk together. Okay? But one's kosher, one's kosher. Put them together. It doesn't make any sense. The Greeks said you can't do that. You want to keep dietary laws because it's healthy? Go ahead. But none of this godly Jewish stuff. So the victory of Torah was Hanukkah. What's the victory of Yudas Kislev? The victory of Hashem. God's victory. The victory of the soul. The soul's victory. Purely spiritual victory. One man got out of prison. But that one man was the light source for an entire generation and seven generations later. The spiritual victory of God. So it says there's three things in the world, three bonds, Torah, Jew, and God. So the Hanukkah was the victory of the Torah. Purim was the victory of the Jew. And Yudhiskis is the victory of God, our soul. So it's a very special day. It's like, it can't be underestimated. It's a powerful day. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing stuff. I heard a cool story. You know, there's like a Baal Shuva movement. A lot of people becoming more observant. And a boy goes to a Chabad Yeshiva. And he calls his parents and he says, Mom, you never guess. Today's Yutes Kislev. She says, what's that? I never heard of that, you know. She's like, it's right before Hanukkah every year. She's like, oh, Hanukkah, I know, but like, what's Yutes Kislev? She says, well, it's the day the first Chabad Rebbe got out of jail. She's so very nice. So she explains in the story. Calls mom up again later in Tamos. Says, Yud Beis Yugimot Hamas. He says, what's today? He says, mom, the previous Rebbe was not under the czar. He was under the communists. They also put him in jail. And he saved the Jewish children. Jewish education was saved in Russia because of the previous Rebbe. He came to America, started up a, in the middle of the Holocaust, Jewish education again, Chabad movement all over the world, 1940. Amazing. Comes around, Kislev again. He says, Mom, today is good Kislev, test Kislev. So what happened this day? He said, the Mithler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, was put in jail. What were you put in jail for? He was put in jail because he, people thought he was Mashiach and he was going to overthrow the Russian government, the Tsarist government also. She says, I'm so happy you're excited about these things, but who are these people you're hanging around with that are always in jail all the time? Can't you find a better group of friends to associate with? The point is, is that we've had a lot of existential threats to not only the Holocaust, God forbid us, and, and the Spanish Inquisition and, and the Arabs kicking us out of all the, the Middle Eastern countries. We have, We've had enough of the bigger existential things. But it's an amazing thing when we talk about a Moses, a King David, being put in jail. If you think about it in that context, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It's like, we're almost, God forbid us, oh, poo, 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 used to having the Babylonians at our throat. The Greeks, the Hellenists, the Nazis, the, the Stalinists, the Communists. We're used to that almost. The Polish pogroms. God forbid. But when we think about it, we're not used to Moses being put in jail. We're not used to King David being put in jail. It, it, it blows the mind. It boggles the mind that the leader of the Jewish people in the last seven generations of our people have been unfortunately put in jail by communists, czars, etc., etc., all the way down the list. So the soul of the Altar Rebbe, who's put in jail, the first Chabad Rebbe put in jail, I've explained to you, that he was not only his personal redemption, but his personal redemption was really a global redemption. And now we see it. Now there's a Chabad Baruch Hashem on every corner. Chabad.org is the most Jewish visited website. The Rebbe, our Rebbe, was the most famous rabbi probably of all time, outside of maybe Moses. I mean, I don't know anyone else who's more famous. 
You got more male than anyone except the president of the United States. Chabad is ubiquitous with Judaism now. It's like one thing. But what about the fact that there's this one individual and at that time he was released from prison and there's a redemption. It says also that he was released when he was saying Tehillim, Psalms. What Psalm was he saying? He was saying the Psalm, Pada v'shalim nafshi mikravli kiviravim hayu imadi. That King David says, he, it's Psalm um, Nun Hei 55. Psalm 55, chapter... Um, uh, line 19. King David says it. He says, You have redeemed my soul in peace, in peace, but shalom, from those who waged war against me, who battled against me. You redeemed my soul in peace, but shalom. And there was an opposition. That opposition was removed. And not only am I redeemed from that opposition, but I'm peaceful, I'm tranquil. There's a shalom amongst it. What did King David say? There was a multitude of people who came to his help and that prayed on King David's behalf. King David was a spiritual warrior and a physical warrior. He was a king who was cunning in battle. He was also a great scholar. He was great psalms. I mean, he was a singer also. It's amazing how our great rabbis are also... I was teaching in the nursing home. I was there and I said, you know, all our greatest rabbis are also composers. Also musicians. King David wrote Psalms. Moses wrote Psalms. The first Chabad Rebbe, he wrote ten songs. Our Rebbe wrote ten songs. They wrote, they're very music, musical. Our leaders are musicians, they're artists. They're amazing. It's not just they're not just we think of them as like either like great rabbis, like intel, intellectuals or prophets or kings. They're also musicians. King David for sure up there. Solomon. Solomon wrote the Song of Songs. There are leaders who are always musical leaders. This pen of the soul is music. Beautiful. So King David says, people prayed for me and people threw themselves, their necks out for me physically also. And he says, I am praying. I'm thanking you, Hashem, sorry, for redeeming my soul in peace. And it says that even some of the followers of King David's enemies were praying on his behalf. They physically couldn't, Avshalom was an enemy. And then even of Shalom's followers were praying for King David, like almost like secretly. Like they couldn't say who we're outside of, but they were praying for David also. So it shows us that when King David had a victory, it was from the house of David. Who is the house of David? Mashiach. Mashiach comes from the house of David, based of it. One of the interesting things is, it's, and whose son was King David's son? Shlomo. Solomon. Shlomo means peace. Shalom comes from the same root. You hear it. Shlomo, Solomon, Shlomo. He was a peaceful man. King David waged wars and battles. The holy temple, King David started, but God said, you're not the completer of it. You have blood on your hands. You're not completing my temple. My house is a house of peace. Your son will complete the job. And we see by Shlomo's reign, Solomon's reign, he was extremely wealthy. He had no existential threats. It's spiritual threats. There's a whole thing about him and angels and demons and all this stuff. But he had no real... He said there was a river of diamonds going from Queen of Sheba, I believe, to, to, to Jerusalem. He had like money beyond anything. Spiritual powers beyond anything. Peace reigned in his time. The house of David, though, was not just the house of David for David and Shlomo, but there's a generational thing. It was a generational lineage that's been passed down. 
There's very, there's one of the oldest, I think, biographies we have is of a man named Bustanai. It's a great book. And he's talks about, he lived at the time when Islam came on the scene. You heard his new religion, Islam? It's new. It's only a few hundred years old, right? Maybe a thousand, a couple thousand. It's not that, it's pretty new. And he lived at the time of Muhammad, around the time, right after. And Muhammad wanted to wipe out the seed of David. They wanted to wipe out the house of David. And they went after Bustanai. They went after him because they knew he was from that house. And there was many, many people who traced their lineage to King David in this time. Rashi traces his lineage to King David. And King David's lineage was a famous lineage. The first Chabad Rebbe and all the Chabad Rebbe's also have their lineage traced directly to King David. How do we know? Have you ever heard of the Golem? You ever heard of the Golem image in like the old stories? The Golem, the, the the clod of earth that became a man that fought it's anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah, the famous. Yeah, ago, yeah. And then Prague, Czechoslovakia. This paper. Yeah. yeah. I just want to sure. So the Maharal of Prague was the greatest le- Jewish leader of his time, and he has a lineage, family lineage, going back to King David. Many people, especially women, used to write in the back of their books especially Tehillim and Siddhars and Chumashim, Tehillim, they'd write their family lineage. They'd write their mother's name, where they got married, birth not birthdays so much, but yard sites. And they would write the family lineage. I was one time by a shiva in Roslyn, and the husband was Israeli, and the mother was a very American Jewish woman. Sweet people, we're still in touch today. I just, Rabbi, I want to show you something. I don't get to pull this out too often to impress people with this. She pulls out her mother's Tehillim, from who knows how long ago. But maybe, I think it was her grandmother's Tehillim that was her mother. And in the back is all the dates. All the weddings, all the places where they lived. You know, David married Sarah, and Sarah and David had uh, Joseph, and Joseph had... All the way back. And you find these books of these Jewish women who maintain the family lineage all the way back. And the most prestigious one would be if you came from the house of David. I'll tell a story. The altar Rebbe came from the house of David. His Rebbe, who is not bloodline related to except for King David, was also related to King David. When the Mazrucha Magid, when his Rebbe was five years old, their house burned down. The family house burned down. The house was not much of a house. It was like boards. It was like, they literally, of all the Hasidic Rebbe's, he probably lives in poverty the most. But even at five, he was growing up in abject poverty. And the mother stands outside the burning house with the five-year-old boy and says, you see what I lost? She's crying her eyes out. He says, Mom, like, honestly, what did we lose? Like, you know, a table, a board that was held up by logs and some beds and some straw that was piled in the corner as beds. Like, what did we lose? You didn't lose that much. I don't understand why you're crying. She says, you have no idea. Inside the house was my lineage family lineage, going back to King David. I lost this lineage now, and I have no proof of my lineage to King David anymore. The five-year-old boy turns to his mother and says, don't worry, Mom, I'll start a new lineage. I'll start a new one for us, a new family line. He grew up to be the second Hasidic Rebbe, the second generation after Baal Shem Tov. He said, I'll start a new lineage for you, Mom. This is how precious the line of King David was. But this is how precious he was. I take it to mean, and I heard this from another rabbi, beautiful. Each one of us is starting our lineage now. 
We all have your lineage. We all have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Maybe Mish has better lineage than most of us here probably also. But we all have a good lineage here. We all have a good lineage, and some of us know it, and some of us don't know it. But each one of us is starting our lineage right now. It's up to us. When you start a Jewish family, when you raise your children with, with the values of Torah, of Hasidus, of, of meaning in life, you're starting a new lineage. You're starting a new one. It's okay. You don't have to worry about where you came from. You, you're, you're, the, you're the new kid on the block. You're the new person. I'll tell you a secret. When I first got married to my wife, I said to my wife something similar to this without knowing the story. I said, you know, in the Jewish world, everyone knows everybody. Play Jewish geography. Especially if you live in a religious Jewish community. Oh, you're this rabbi's son. You're from here. You're from there. Oh, you're this person's cousin, this person's brother's mother's. No. And my answer is always, no. I'm not that guy. I don't have religious relatives. I don't have a family in Crown Heights. I don't have a family on Shlichus and Chabad relatives. I don't have Hasidic relatives, no one from Borough Park, no one from wherever. I don't have no one from Israel. Kravisky, there's other people with that name, but I'm not related to them. My answer is no, 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 no. I said, but don't I know? No, you don't know me. And you can look at that as a horrible disadvantage. How do you get ahead? How do you become a rabbi? How do you build a community? How do you... You know, go to the right yeshiva. Send your kids to the right yeshivas. If you don't know somebody who knows somebody. And I said to my wife, this is a tremendous advantage. Because everybody who has a name that's recognizable, who has a lineage, also has baggage attached. Also has politics attached. The Goldbergs messed over the Goldsteins in a real estate deal in Russia, 1700s. Ah, we're still holding on to that. And believe me, that exists. One of my closest mentors knows a person that I had a certain issue with. Literally, he turns to me in his office, he says to me, my great-grandfather loaned his great-grandfather <laughs> money because he had nothing to do with his life in like, I forget, Poland somewhere. Maybe uh, Vilna. I forget where he's from. I'm like, really? Dude, really? Like 200 years ago? You're still like, that's the guy? That's why he's messed up in 2020? He says, yeah, no, that's why. <laughs> he says, believe me. He says, oh, Okay, fine. If you think that's the way, I'll take your word for it. But my point is, is that each one of us, if we have the lineage, beautiful, and we explore it, and we can use it for good. But it, And we have a responsibility then also. We have a responsibility to our lineage. But if we're new on the block, we also don't have the baggage. We start, our new, we start a new chapter in history for our families. And how beautiful is that? Whether or not, if you know your lineage, you're also starting a new chapter anyway, too. You're not exempt. You're also starting a new chapter. Hopefully it builds on a better chapter than the previous chapter, even. And you have that capacity. So here you have the first Chabad Rebbe, who comes from the house of David. His Rebbe came from the house of David. They're not blood. It wasn't like nepotism, like his father. Was, it wasn't his father. It wasn't related. But you see that this rekindling of the house of David happens right at the last moments of exile. Our generation is so low. You know, people go on 23andMe to find their, their, their lineage. You know, here we have people 200 years ago could trace their lineage father to son, mother to daughter, all the way back. So it's an amazing thing, this concept. It says in the Talmud that, I'm sorry, it says in the Megillah, it says that when the Jewish people were sent into exile, God went with them. The divine presence went into exile with them. Not only did one, the simple explanation is what? 
the holy temples destroyed, and the divine presence also left Israel, so to say, left Jerusalem in a palpable way. It's always there, but it left in a palpable way that could be experienced. There's no more prophecy in Jeru- coming out of, you know, no one walks into the Western Wall and walks out a prophet, unless they're like Meshuggah. But no one does that. So the simple explanation is, God also left, sort of say, the scene. With the Jewish people who left the scene were forcibly exiled as well. But the deeper explanation is, is that you can find God on your terms now. God's divine presence is found with you. What does it mean God went with the Jewish people? It doesn't mean he left. He went with you. He didn't leave. He became personalized. He became relevant to the individual. Whereas before, he was relevant, relevant much more to the collective. Go to the Holy Temple. See Hashem. Celebrate Passover. Eat the eat a Passover lamb chop on your Passover Seder. Experience God. Wonderful. Religion. What happened now? It's not so religious anymore. It's now individualistic. It's now spiritual and relevant to the individual. So now you see, sort of say, a parallel to what the Alter Rebbe Chabad did, was making the individual paramount and making it that each individual realizes that the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, is together with me. It's together with me as an individual. Yes, I'm part of a Jewish community. I'm part of a Klal Yisrael. On the whole, I'm part of, I pray with a minion, with ten men, hopefully. I go to classes with Jewish people. I attend Hanukkah events this week, coming up Sunday. I, I attend, it's Hakel this year, is a year of gathering. But it all boils down to me. The individual has full access. Has Shechina with him or her, wherever they are. So now let's go back to what King David said. God has redeemed me from my enemies in peace. And the many who rose up against me, I had many people at my back. I had the wind at my sails. I had the Jewish people behind me as a king who helped redeem me. Fast forward 2,000 years to to the altar Rebbe. Similar situation. Fast forward to the previous Rebbe who was imprisoned by the communists. What did he say at the train station in the middle of the Holocaust when he left? He says, today is not just a personal redemption. It's a redemption for everybody, if you remember my class in the summer, who calls himself Jew. Anybody who says, I'm a Jew, today's their redemption too. The individual Jew has the most tremendous value, has the divine presence at their fingertips. Ah, but just to do something about it. So Chabad says, here's the Tanya. Here's Hasidic philosophy. Here's Chabad Hasidus. Here's something that you can take home with you, study daily, ask your rabbi questions about, and make it personal. Make it personalized. So it says something very, very powerful about that fact. There's also, it says, the multitude who were praying with me are with me. That the Shekhinah rests even more when Jews come together. So as much as we're focusing on the individual, as much as we're focusing on the fact that, yes, you have your own direct path with God. I always compare it to like a baseball catch. It's like you and God in a field by yourself. You throw the ball, God throws it. God catches it. God throws it to you, you catch it. 
the best conversations between father and son are during a baseball catch between a parent and a kid a baseball catch it's a reciprocity it's a back it's equal dad and child same level grandfather and grandchild same level they're having a catch and they can talk about all the problems in the world and the world can go by you have a catch but it's also important to realize that we're part of something greater the more you get in touch with your individuality, the more you feel also connected to Kalal Yisrael, to every single Jew. And you realize, I should pray with a minion. I should attend Jewish events on a grander scale. I should connect more and more. Because what does it say? I was redeemed in peace as an individual, but only because I had a multitude with me at my back to support me. So it says, me and my children. The implication is that the redemption is not just on King David or the Altar Rebbe. It's not only on every single person who calls themselves Jew, but it's God's redemption too. God says, I was in prison with you. God says, you redeemed my soul in peace too, sort of say. My divine presence also now can fulfill what I want from the world. Now, Yiddishkeit, Torah, mitzvahs are open source. This is a redemption for God. Now God is found in places here previously was not ever to be found, sort of say, in a revealed aspect, in a palpable way. So you have a connection between the relationship between God, Shekhinah, divine presence. When I say God in this case, I'm not talking about the fact that God's everywhere. I'm talking about the palpable divine presence that when you actualize yourself, you actualize godliness and you feel and that was seen in the Holy Temple. But now that rests on the individual because of the redemption of our King David in prison or at, at bay to his enemies, the Altar Rebbe in prison, etc. And then now the freedom of every single Jew to pursue their Judaism, open source, deeper, more expressive than ever. But also Hashem, sort of say, can be found more ubiquitously throughout the world, more omnipresent than ever. Because now, there's a new tekufa, a new period for Jews, for Torah, and for Hashem. And so you see now that it's also, sort of say, a godly redemption. God also previously was encumbered, sort of say, by us more than anything else, or by opposition to godliness. And now, it's open. So by spreading the wellsprings of Torah, and specifically the inner dimension of Torah, we're able to wake up souls. We're able to wake ourselves up. And by waking ourselves up, we're bringing God into our reality. We're bringing God into my daily life. It's almost like, if you think about it as like a microcosm or a macrocosm, right? How does the macro come into micro? I'm getting too uh, esoteric of you guys. <laughs> Point is, is that you have a global and you have a personal. So something that was a universal truth, God's everywhere, now can be found by a singular, by an individual, by a solitary. Wait a second, how can you say God is only in a, in a solitary? He's everywhere. You know, how can a universal be found in an individual? That's what this is. This is saying that before the universal was accepted, but now the universal can be found in the individual. That when I do something, I'm a microcosm for the world. I'm really a microcosm for God. It's almost like an atom. Once the atom is split, then you have nuclear 
fission. Then everything blows up. Then everything is only when you go subatomic can then you get to the biggest powers there are. Wait a second, it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. So it says now when I actualize my little corner of the universe, it's reflective of the cosmic universe, the entire universe that's there. So this is an amazing thing because it shows us that the deeper we go, the more inward I am, the more outward I become. The more inward I go in my own Jewish life, in my meditations, in my prayers, the more I want to connect with other Jews. The more I become a beacon of light to my coworkers, to my family, to my friends, and I become a source of light, not just someone who's taken in light, but also someone who radiates out light. And this is the, what really Yudhas Kislev is really all about. Is it saying that each one of us has the same capacity to do this? Where does this all stem from? So, in I might get the year wrong. I want to say 1643. The Baal Shem Tov on Rosh Hashanah. After Rosh Hashanah, he wrote a letter to his brother-in-law. He wrote a letter to his brother-in-law. We have the print of it. He wrote a letter to his brother-in-law, and he writes like this: On Rosh Hashanah. My soul went up to the highest level it's ever gone up to before. I'm paraphrasing, and it's longer than what I'm saying. My soul went up to the highest level it's never been before. And he writes in detail what happened to him. He says, I was escorted as if I had wings, up higher and higher to higher spheres. And then I saw treasure troves of souls of people. I saw lost souls. I saw souls going up and souls trapped. And I saw all different levels. And then I ascended even higher. And I got to the level of souls where I felt like I was in a big yeshiva with literally, like, I don't know, myriads of souls. I don't know, millions of the numbers. Myriads of souls and uh, people. And they were all in the higher realms. They were studying Torah. They were sitting around one sage in each realm. And I would go to this realm. They'd all listen to this rabbi. And he says, I made the association that was like, you know, you followed your Rebbe in your time and your soul after life went back and learned again from that Rebbe, circular connections interwined with family members and people of your generation and so on and so forth. The inner workings of souls. And then I got higher than I ever got. I went to one soul and everyone was rushing there. Everyone's rushing there. And they saw me up there. And I said, who is this guy? Who is this guy? He's not supposed to be here. I'm, he's alive. They saw he was different than them. He was a soul and body. So they entered the chamber of Mashiach. I saw the soul of Mashiach that is yet to be come into the world. And I asked Mashiach one line. I had one chance at one moment to open my mouth. And I asked one question. What would you ask Mashiach? When are you going to come? When are you going to come? And the Baal Shem Tov asks Mashiach, when are you going to come? And he says, when your wellsprings spread to the four corners of the earth and the extremities of the world, then I will come. When your wellsprings travel to the extremities of the world, then I will come. After I heard the answer, he says, my soul went, and came back down. And he's like, I was in awe. And he he can write it. It's translated in English, actually. But the fascinating thing is, is if you look at the world right now, we see those wellsprings have covered every corner of the earth. There's a Chabad everywhere. And even the Rebbe pointed to radio waves. This, that there used to be, a, there's a class in Tanya on the radio, now on podcasts, this is being recorded too. And the radio waves fill the entire world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you go on the moon, you can hear radio waves. 
like it's famous thing they in uh, I think the, the Nazis I think bounced radio waves off the moon in 1939. I think that's what they tried to like bounce stuff off the moon or something and get the signal back. Famous stuff. Point is, radio waves are in this room right now. Oh, well, we don't have an antenna put up, so we don't hear them. But you put your radio back in the thing. Isn't it something called an antenna? They said the antenna. <laughs> antenna. And you get your radio waves, you pick it up. If you don't know, there's Wi-Fi in this room right now. Yeah, everyone agrees. You know, only because I have a cell phone that can receive it. Can I pick up the Wi-Fi? But in that Wi-Fi is Torah. In the Wi-Fi is, is, is a lot of bad stuff too. I'm not going to say it's not. But the prophecy is when your wellsprings cover the corners of the earth, then I will come. So we see the fulfillment of this prophecy has happened. And we see on Yudhaz Kislev that the taking of these wellsprings and making them applicable to universally applied to every single individual, both universally and individually. And in an individual can understand it, and I can understand it in my small brain, in my small capacity for understanding, means to say that the fulfillment of this prophecy has happened and is happening, and it really came to a watershed moment on Yudhaz Kislev, on the 19th of Kislev. So we see that in our times, we're still living with this, and even more so. We see what our Rebbe has done with the, with the way Chabad's on every street corner of the world, and we see the way that, every, that there's this movement of Jews returning to their faith and bringing themselves back to their roots, and it only laps one or two, maybe three generations, four generations, maybe, and they're Jews moving and shaking back to their roots. It's an amazing time to be a Jew. It's an amazing time to see that these wellsprings are literally like the ocean covering the earth. And we have access to them. They're online, they're in our pockets, they're in our bookshelves. We have access to these things. So the innermost light of the Torah has now been disseminated all over the world. And we know that the only barrier to light is another substance, another substrate. Light can't block itself. Light cannot block itself. Right? I heard a great Stephen Wright joke. I have to tell this one. He says, one day I went into a job interview and I opened up the book and I started reading and I said, what do you think you're doing here? He says, let me ask you a question. See, you're driving in a car at the speed of light. And you turn on your headlights. Does it help? The guy says, I don't know. Does it? He says, if you don't know the answer, I can't work for you. I walked out. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, is understand, light is anywhere we let it in. Light can be anywhere we let it in. So Yudas Kessler says, you can let it into your mind. You can let it into your heart. And that'll be a personal redemption and it'll also lead to a global redemption too. So, talking about light, we're coming to Hanukkah. We should have a happy Hanukkah, joyous Hanukkah, light-filled Hanukkah. And uh, we'll see you hopefully at our event on Sunday.